Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Diane Ashton, professor of religion at Rowan University. She's joining me to discuss her new book, Hanukkah in America, published in 2013 by New York University Press. Diane, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm really happy to have you here. Um, should we delve right into the interview? Sure. Wonderful. My first question is really, what made you want to write a book about Hanukkah in America to begin with? I am really fascinated by the way that Judaism has taken on a new shape in the U.S. Um, Things have become more important than in other times, and other things have become less important. Most things have become less important, and it seems to have been a real struggle over the many centuries that Jews have been in North America to try to figure out how Judaism was going to survive and how could we transmit it to the next generation in a successful way. And Hanukkah really stood out to me as the example of something that thrived in America, blossomed in America in a way that it really had not in earlier eras of Jewish history. And so I wanted to find out what made that happen. Really interesting. And for our readers that aren't as familiar with it, what is Hanukkah's origin story and where do we get this information from? There are a number of documents from uh, around the first century BCE that talked about the rededication of the ancient temple in Jerusalem. And it needed to be rededicated because someone who had conquered Judea, Antiochus IV, who was the king of the uh, Syrians, um, became obsessed, it seems, according to the documents, with trying to take over Judea in a way that previous conquerors really had not attempted. He really wanted to, first of all, uh, loot the temple. He wanted the money for that was for uh, widows and orphans and all of the gold objects that were in the temple. He wanted to take those for himself. He, but the things that, that are talked about most often in the Hanukkah story are his attempts to really wipe out Judaism. And we're not sure why he did this. Um, But those stories say that he banned reading of the Torah, he banned circumcision, and he put a statue to Zeus with his own face on it in the temple in Jerusalem. And he installed uh, high priests who... that that he picked, who would go along with his plan to kind of take over things in Judea. This, as you might expect, really upset a few people. Mm -hmm. And so there was a revolt. And uh, the revolt was led by Judah, uh, called the Maccabee. And the Maccabean revolt was actually successful. And got rid of uh, Antiochus's efforts, got Judea to be uh, independent, 
And uh, they rededicated the temple in Jerusalem uh, after uh, cleansing it from all the junk that had happened to it during the war and uh, cleaning it out of cleaning the stuff that Antiochus had put in. Um, and in the story of the rededication, um, in the Talmud, there's a story that tells us that there was a miracle that occurred. There was only a little bit of oil, the Talmud says, um, to light the menorahs that were always lighted in the temple. And um, the oil would only last for one day, just for the very small amount of oil. But a miracle happened, and it lasted for eight days until more oil could be made. And that meant, uh, according to Jewish interpretation, that God was really the force behind this victory. And it was because Jews were loyal to Judaism that God rescued them and uh, was able help them to kind of get their country back and get the temple working again. Mm. So that's really what we celebrate is the rededication. And the word Hanukkah means dedication. So this is really a story of ancient events and the sources that really originally document the story are, as you say, the Talmud and um, Josephus, I believe you mentioned. What is, um, what is the level of observance of Hanukkah as a main holiday between ancient times and, let's say, up until the beginning of the modern period? Is this a big holiday for people? No, Hanukkah was never categorized as an important event. Talmud categorizes it as a minor festival. Uh, Hanukkah and Purim both are considered minor festivals. And uh, that means that you don't have to stop working. The only time you have to stop working is while the candles are actually lighted. And since they're very small candles, this doesn't last a very long time, usually about half an hour, and that's it. But uh, you light candles at sundown, and so it created an atmosphere when, uh, because this is done in homes, when families had a half an hour uh, which begins with a blessing and lighting the candles, a half an hour in which they cannot work. Women also are not supposed to work during uh, this time that the candles are lighted. And so it created a time when families could be together and uh, enjoy Hanukkah, enjoy not working, enjoy this evening of light together. And so this is considered a minor festival throughout the medieval and early modern periods. You argue in your book that the mid-19th century is when Hanukkah becomes important for American Jews. And before getting into why that happens, I'm wondering if you can sort of set the stage for us and give us a profile of the Jewish community in America during the mid-19th century. There were not a lot of Jews in the United States in the mid-19th century. Um, Generally, people say that by around 1880, we have approximately 250,000 Jews in the whole country. Not a lot of people. The earliest communities were, of course, in the port cities of New York and Philadelphia. Charleston, during the colonial period in the early 19th century, was actually the largest Jewish community, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and then, of course, during the course of the 19th century, as the United States moved west, Jews moved west with it. So we get communities in Cincinnati, Ohio, that become important. Um, and then, of course, New York City becomes important at the end of the century. Great. And so after the Civil War, when this 
turn to Hanukkah as importance occurs, who are some of the first American Jews to revive or promote Hanukkah? And what are the reasons for doing so? They have very interesting reasons for doing so. Um, the case that I really want to talk about that I think is, is interesting, well, there are actually two cases. One is um, in <clears throat> Charleston, South Carolina, Panina Moisa, who was a poet uh, and had published a book of poetry, Charleston thought she was uh, their poet laureate, they called her. She was a member of a very interesting uh, uh, synagogue in Charleston, uh, where there was a lot of interest in reform. There was interest in putting things in English language so that the congregants could really understand what was going on. And what was going on in Charleston at that time was a good deal of effort to evangelize everybody. This was a time when Methodist Christianity, Baptist Christianity were really blossoming. And uh, so Jews felt the pressure to respond to evangelists with some kind of defense of Judaism. And what Moisa does is she writes a hymnal for her congregation in English, and her Hanukkah hymn does some very interesting things. It asserts that our God is still the God who is in charge of the universe and who is uh, the one who hears our prayers and answers our needs, and uh, that there's really no reason for Jews to ever consider any other God. There's no, uh, no need for that. God will protect us as God protected us in the past and during the Maccabean Revolt, which is a really interesting thing because Hanukkah has not been talked about previously as a time when um, God forgives the sins of Jews, when God in particular, protects Jews from uh, evangelists. This is not the kind of thing that's usually talked about at Hanukkah. But Moisa does write that kind of poem, uh, which becomes a hymn that her congregation sings every year. Um, and it actually became quite popular in the United States throughout the 19th century. A very different thing was happening in Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, we have the growth of Reform Judaism, and there are two key rabbis, Isaac Mayer Wise, who is really the institution builder of Reform Judaism, and Max Lilienthal, uh, who was his great friend and ally. Lilienthal really cared quite a lot about children and children's education. And these two men together um, came up with a new kind of way to celebrate Hanukkah that was really focused on children. And this is kind of a flag for us. This, this is a marker showing us that in the future, Hanukkah is going to be something that children uh, are really the centerpiece for our Hanukkah celebrations. What happened in Cincinnati was that Max Lilienthal had been um, invited to speak in a church. Perhaps he was the first rabbi in the U.S. to be invited to speak in a church. And he was a wonderful guy, a wonderful speaker. And he paid attention to what was going on in the church around him. And he noticed that they were doing things for their children to keep them, as he said, in happy expectation of future events in the church, to keep children eager to come to church. And he thought to himself, what are we doing for our children in Reform synagogues? Nothing. And so he came back to his own congregation and developed a Hanukkah celebration 
in the synagogue for the children of the school that he supervised. And Wise adapted it immediately for his congregation and the children of the school that he supervised. And it was an event for children and the women of the congregation, the mothers and the women religious school teachers assisted the rabbis. So it was really a simple thing. Remember, the ceremony is just the lighting of candles and saying a few blessings. So there was plenty of room to add other things that children would like doing. Singing songs and having treats of oranges and ice cream. And so they developed these ceremonies, these celebrations, and then they wrote about them in the newspapers that each one edited. Lilienthal had a newspaper that went to children every Saturday or Sunday, and Wise had uh, a weekly magazine that was also read around the country. And in both of these magazines, these men uh, publicized these events, urged people to develop them in their own congregations, and then write in to the newspaper um, descriptions of what went on in their own congregations. So when we look back at these newspapers, we have a picture of what was going on around the country at Hanukkah as congregations around the country adapted it to what interested them, what they wanted to do. So in Denver, kids did uh, drill teams and special dances. In Atlanta, uh, they wrapped the Torah in an American flag for their Hanukkah celebration in the synagogue for the kids. In New York City, they showed slides of the Holy Land. So a wide variety of things could happen, but it promoted Hanukkah as a time when special activities for children should be uh, mounted and, and established. And this became a tradition around the country um, every Hanukkah, there are always things that go on in synagogues, in religious schools that make kids really happy to celebrate Hanukkah. So this is sort of a well-established national practice and children become the emphasis um, by the end of the 19th century. How did the immigration of over 2 million Eastern European Jews at the turn of the 20th century transform the understanding of Hanukkah? Did they see the importance of the holiday in the same way as their 19th century counterparts? Not exactly. Um, immigrants, uh, they were facing a different kind of challenge. For them, they were usually not very wealthy at all. And so for these people, it was a challenge to become American. They came um, not knowing English letters usually, and uh, they established Hanukkah as a time when they would do a number of different kinds of things. Uh, one thing that would happen in the communities of Eastern European immigrants were Hanukkah concerts, often uh, led by cantors who were enjoying a great um, time of, of uh, success in the early, early 20th century. Uh, these were the uh, figures in the Jewish community that would entertain Jews in a way that would kind of remind them of traditional Judaism, but they didn't do this always in a synagogue. And so if this concert was in uh, a concert hall, they could add all kinds of music that the audience would enjoy. 
And so Hanukkah concerts became uh, something that immigrants enjoyed doing. Often these concerts would be fundraisers for Jewish schools or Jewish congregations or Jewish clubs. So it also fed back to uh, supporting the community in a special way at Hanukkah that would bring people together. Children, though, also became important for immigrants in a different way than they were in the 19th century uh, because by the early 20th century, Christmas was becoming or had already become the occasion for buying gifts for children. And so Hanukkah became an occasion for buying gifts for children. And immigrants like doing this. Presence is one of the first English words we see appearing in the Yiddish newspaper. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's not so surprising because it showed immigrants that they were successful enough in America to be able to buy a gift for their child. It was a reassuring thing for the parent, and it was a pleasurable thing for the child, obviously. And so it was uh, a way that they could show they had been a bit successful and that they were also uh, continuing their Jewishness. So as they, um, these Eastern European immigrants incorporate into American society... By the interwar period, in the wake of World War I in 1918, you argue that Hanukkah took on what I believe you say is a new urgency within American Jewry. Why and how was this expressed? The interwar period had a different tone for Jews than previous eras. By the 1920s, early 20s, immigration had been severely restricted, and there was a rise of a Push to Americanize the immigrants. We had not only Jewish immigrants, we had many more Italian Catholic and Polish Catholic immigrants who had come to the country. And the Protestant majority was uneasy about this. And so the interwar period became a time when there was a tremendous push to get immigrants to Americanize, to be uh, do to do more things like American, Americans in general, to have names that sounded like WASP names, to uh, not speak foreign languages, to be more like the majority culture. So it was a tremendous push to do that. And that made Jews a bit uneasy. They certainly um, went along with this because this was the pressure of the country. But what we see emerging in uh, Jewish popular culture in the 20s at Hanukkah is the many Jewish clubs uh, and Jewish schools uh, began performing skits. And this was actually something that was popular in American culture in general. Amateur skits would be something that adults and children and teenagers would do in their groups. Um, And when we look at what those skits were saying, we see different things for adults than for children, not so surprising. The Hanukkah plays for adults are almost always very serious. And the message is, uh, be careful that your children remain Jewish. Make sure that you don't do something that will make your children dislike being Jewish. Um, Beware of your children's alliances with non-Jews. So the uh, plays for adults are really quite serious and uh, are cautionary tales 
to make sure that the people in the audience and the people acting out this skit get the message that they have to make a special effort to keep themselves, their household, and their children Jewish. Of course, the plays for children are not so serious. They want kids to have fun. And so in Jewish schools and in Jewish children's clubs, we see plays where children act often. They are acting out the Maccabean revolt, the story of the dedication of the temple. And, you know, when you're acting out something, you really are um, taking that into yourself. You're pretending to be that character. And so it, it makes a big impression on the children and, uh, and on the parents in, those, in the case of those more serious plays. So the interwar period... Um, is a cautionary time, but it's a time when Hanukkah becomes adapted to that new seriousness. And as you mentioned, these calls for Jewish adults to protect the home, to ensure their children's ongoing connections to Judaism. Did you find the Jewish men and Jewish women were equally tasked with this preservation? Did you see gender playing a role here? Gender plays a huge role in this. Um, As soon as you see a holiday focusing on children, something that goes on in the home, you know that women are going to be heavily involved. (laughs) So women become important to American Hanukkah celebrations very early on. In those Cincinnati celebrations, women were really the people who organized the events, who made sure the kids were well-behaved, who made sure that the various events were things that kids would like to do. In the 20th century, many of those plays were performed in households, uh, in clubs where the club leader was perhaps a mother. But the other thing we see happening is the women's organizations, the Jewish women's organizations, are becoming nationalized in the early 20th century, and they take on Uh, a very explicit responsibility to uh, promote Judaism in their homes. The National Federation for Temple Sisterhoods, which is the Reform Women's uh, Association, makes a very explicit, strong statement that a very important part of our organization is promoting religion in our homes. And very shortly thereafter, the Conservative Women's Organization, the Women's League for Conservative Judaism, does the same thing. And so in their records, we see um, um, minutes of uh, committee meetings, but also materials that they produce, that they send to their members around the country to advise them on the kinds of things that they should be doing in their homes to make their children happy at Hanukkah. Um, If dad is working late and can't get home in time to light the candles, then mom has to do it with the kids. (laughs) And so women become educated in in doing this and take on a particular responsibility for having Hanukkah celebrations and Hanukkah parties in their homes. So to what degree then did World War II and the Holocaust shape immediate post-war American Jewish communal priorities and, in turn, the observances of Hanukkah, both within and beyond the Jewish community? Interesting things happen, of course. World War II and uh, is a tremendously sobering and serious and frightening time for American Jews. Um, one woman uh, painted a picture of Judah Maccabee on the mirror of her dining room. Uh, so that her kids could be reminded 
of uh, Jews can defend themselves and be successful at it. It happened before. It can happen again. And certainly with the Zionist movement, which takes on uh, Hanukkah as a special holiday for the Zionist movement because it commemorates a revolt where Jews became independent as a country again and took control of their country again because Hanukkah becomes a very important holiday for the Zionist movement um, until, of course, they have their own Independence Day. And then that, uh, that is uh, the big day in Israel instead. But Hanukkah in the communities after World War II in America takes um, an important role, continuing to build on things that have already been established for decades. As Jews move to the suburbs and set up uh, congregations that really become new Jewish communities, synagogues in the suburbs are not just places for worship. They are very much also places for the communities to gather because you don't have those tight neighborhoods that you did in an immigrant neighborhood. In the suburbs, you have um, Jews living among uh, many number of different kinds of people, and so the synagogue becomes a community center. Later, of course, we have community centers that were established in addition to synagogues, but even where you don't have a Jewish community center per se, synagogues perform that role. And so Hanukkah celebrations in the synagogue become important times for the community to gather. So there'll be celebrations that build on the previous things that Jews have been doing. They would be religious school celebrations for the children, but then the congregation as a whole might have a full day of events with um, uh, concerts and games and food and face painting, and all kinds of events to make Hanukkah a pleasant time for the Jewish community to gather in their synagogue. And then you argue that by the late 1960s, Jews' relative security with their place in American society enables them to diversify their interpretations of Hanukkah's meeting. Can you give us some examples of how the embrace of individuality affects interpretations of Hanukkah? Well, probably the most obvious thing that happens is the rise of the Chavara movement, uh, previously, a successful synagogue was thought was one that was a large synagogue, something that had, you know, 500, 700, 1,000 families. This would be a very successful synagogue. And then in the late 60s, what you get is, in the early 70s, you get the Chavara movement. Uh, college students who are saying, you know, those synagogues are not warm. They're not personalized. Um there's a standardization of Judaism that doesn't really speak to the individual any longer. And so we get the Chavara movement, which began with small groups of people meeting in homes, celebrating either once a month or every week, whatever they wanted to do because they were in charge. And so their celebrations of holidays were the things that they wanted to do in their own community. And those big synagogues adapted this idea to make the synagogue a warmer, uh, more personal place where people would feel that they knew people uh, more personally. Uh, And so we began to see um, a change in the kinds of institutions that are built 
in the Jewish community in America, and Hanukkah becomes a vehicle for creating new occasions for celebrations where they would be gathering um, in smaller groups to commemorate Hanukkah, but also to strengthen their own little communities. And to what extent do you see Hanukkah in the post-war period being a a space, providing a space for interfaith celebration or more awareness of non-Jews of Judaism? Hanukkah has had uh, almost the entire time it, it has been um, developed as a special occasion in the U.S. because of the time on the calendar when it hits. It always has this sort of shadow of... Uh, the general American grand celebration of Christmas. Um, Hanukkah does not occur at a time of the year when nobody else is having a big holiday. It happens uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so Jews are very aware that Hanukkah has a backdrop of the American um, celebrations that are very grand and very enthusiastic and very expensive uh, and are really taking over American culture in a, in a very positive way, a very strong way. And so schools, particularly in the suburbs where you have uh, perhaps a smaller percentage of Jewish students in public schools, uh, become places where um, congregations, individuals, families have to face this issue of how are we going to have uh, Hanukkah and Christmas? What's going to happen in these communities, in these schools? So Jews begin to um, deal with the public school system in a way that did not always happen previously. Uh, and events like uh, school assemblies might then become, by the late 20th century, become called winter holidays rather than Christmas holidays. Um, and Another interesting thing that goes on uh, by the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, is Chabad becomes more um, outspoken, more of a physical presence in uh, towns, in Jewish communities, and they begin erecting those very large Hanukkah menorahs yes. in public events. They invite the local mayors, um, they give everybody a latke, uh, and it's a very open, obvious, positive, enthusiastic um, Hanukkah celebration. And Jews were kind of surprised at this because up until this point, um, the largest um, percentage of American Jewish community political efforts at Hanukkah really were about... Um, not having demonstrations of religion in the public sphere. Chabad, the Lubavitcher Chabad said, no, you're going the wrong direction. We need to have a positive celebration of Hanukkah. Their perspective was, if everybody else in America can have their holiday, why can't we? And so they, their um, celebrations really became very popular. And Jews found that, you know, it's not, uh, it's not an unpleasant thing. And it seems that Christians were actually happier to have Jews 
um, have an obvious celebration of a Jewish religious event. Rather, they would have them do that than try to um, stop all religious celebrations. So Hanukkah has uh, helped American Jews, I think, turn a different kind of corner in um, coming out with their religious events, being more open about the holidays that they celebrate, and being more welcoming to non-Jews in those celebrations. Now, let me ask you about what I see as perhaps the most controversial aspect of your book. You spell Hanukkah with an H and not a C. Can you tell me about why you decided to go in that direction? What was your rationale for using the H? Can you settle a debate? (laughs) All right. So the book is about Hanukkah in America. This spelling of Hanukkah, H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H, appeared in the New York Times in the 1880s, and it became uh, a standard American tradition ever since. And it's really not surprising because Hanukkah, the Hebrew word Hanukkah, begins with a letter that has no equivalent in English. That back-of-the-throat sound doesn't occur in English. And so how were people going to put it into English language? Um, Of course, we've all seen C-H-A-N-U-K-A-H, various permutations of that with the C-H at the beginning. But if you don't already know that that really means ch, you might end up pronouncing it like the ch in chair, which is not the way Hanukkah is pronounced either. So I decided to go with an American tradition and spell it Hanukkah. Fair enough. I have to ask, are you setting your sights on another project? And if so, can we get a sneak peek? Um, My next project, I think, is going to be a very different one. A lot of my research has been in the 19th century and dealing with Jewish women. And there's a diary that was written by uh, a woman in Richmond, Virginia, named Emma Mordecai. And it was a diary that she kept during the last 12 months of the Civil War. It's a fascinating document. It has not been brought out. And so I'm looking at that diary to um, see how that can be made something that general American uh, readers would enjoy. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Diane, thanks again for being on the show. Again, please check out Hanukkah in America by a Diane Ashton, published in 2013 by New York University Press. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.